Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Faith of Our Fathers. Why has Christianity been in decline? Please welcome Jay Richards, director in the Heritage Foundation's Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family, and the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow. Well, it's, it's great to see you all here, and it's actually great to see there's some, some faces in the room that I don't think I have seen here before. So this is your first time to the Heritage Foundation. Welcome. We always keep the room really, really cold. I don't know if it's to keep people awake or why it's like that, but that's, that's just what we do here. So, so welcome. Um, we at the Heritage Foundation for many years have talked about civil society, the health of civil society, and the institutions of civil society in particular, especially the family. Uh, we are convinced that the fundamental unit of society is the family and that policy, government, the economy, none of these things work without the health of that fundamental unit of society, just as the body does not work if the cells are diseased. Most of us also kind of have this intuitive sense that having fathers in homes is generally a good thing. Right, despite the talk of mas uh, toxic masculinity, most of us, uh, left, right, and center, know that all things being equal, children do better when they have fathers in their homes. We also know that there's been a dramatic decline over the last two generations in the numbers of children, at least as a percentage of the population, that are uh, raised with fathers present throughout their childhood. But the question is, beyond intuitions, what are the precise roles and effects of this decline? We're here actually this morning to talk about an important empirical study of that, and I'm joined by two friends, one a Heritage colleague uh, and another man that I've known for several years doing very important work. So I want to just introduce them very quickly and then uh, we can begin. So we will start with a brief presentation uh, with our guest, uh, J.P. DeGantz, who is going to talk about this research, and then we'll be joined uh, and have a, a panel discussion about it, and then leave plenty of time for those of you either online or in person to be able to ask questions. So let me just briefly introduce our guests. First is J.P. DeGantz. DeGantz is the founder and president of Communio and the co-author of the book, Endgame, the church's strategic move to save faith and family in America. Communio was incubated at the Philanthropy Roundtable where uh, DeGantz served as the organization's executive vice president, which is when I first met him. The initiative spent three years in three different states seeking to identify the best strategies to boost marital health, family stability, and church engagement. From 2016 to 2018, the initiative worked with a network of churches, listen to this, and drove down the divorce rate by 24% in Jacksonville, Florida. Today, Communio helps churches evangelize by applying these findings from their intervention in Jacksonville. But today and this morning, we're actually here to talk about a new Communio nationwide study on faith and relationships, and I don't want to give away all the details. Uh, the other panelist is my colleague in the DeVos Center, uh, Delano Squires. Delano is a research fellow in the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family. He's also a contributor to Blaze Media, where he writes about faith, family, and culture. And you can see him frequently on Blaze TV's Fearless uh, with Jason Whitlock. 
Before joining Heritage, Delano worked for the District of Columbia government for more than a decade. Let that just sink in there for a minute, all right? <laughs> During that time, he provided free technology training classes for job seekers, ex-offenders, and senior citizens. He also created digital exploration programs for K through 12 students, subsidized internet service, and ran several citywide public awareness campaigns. He spent his final year in DC government with the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. So with that, let's get started. Please join me in welcoming J.P. DeGantz and Delano Squires. Hey, J. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, hey, thanks for everyone for being here and anyone who is streaming this as well. Uh, what I'm going to do is give you a quick tour de force of the key findings of this study, the nationwide study on faith and relationships, right? And as the name of this uh, this this symposium uh, would suggest uh, we're, we're going to get at the heart of, of what's driving the explosive growth in religious non-affiliation, right? And lots of folks have been rightly concerned about it, religious and secular. We're also going to talk about briefly, the study goes into it a lot more, that this, the, the root cause of this is, is actually also causing the epidemic of loneliness, okay? And, um, and you can't separate those two, those two things. So the, the, the high, level, high level finding is that it's the collapse of resident fatherhood, right? That's the bad fruit of the collapse of marriage that is fueling the explosive growth in religious non-affiliation and the epidemic of loneliness, all right? And uh, I'll begin to prove it to you. The study does so, uh, and it, it builds off of completed, 19,000 completed surveys on Sunday morning in the pews of 112 different churches across 13 different states around the country. Evangelical churches, different uh, types of Protestant churches, as well as Catholic parishes. Okay, so it's a, a really robust uh, set of data. And a, a big thing I want to note, just let's pause for a moment and, and consider that if you're age 30 and under, okay, less than half of everybody 30 and under grew up in a home where mom and dad stayed continuously married. All right, so less than half, okay? And uh, the reality is, of those 19,000 completed surveys, okay, 80% of everybody sitting in the pews on Sunday grew up in a home where mom and dad stayed continuously married. All right, now, that trend, when I shared this data with Dr. Mark Regners from the University of Texas, uh, Dr. Brad Wilcox, and, and other social scientists, what popped out to them is that that trend held regardless of age, okay? So if you're in your 20s, if you're a 25-year-old, never married man sitting in the pews on Sunday morning, uh, uh, 80, almost 87, about 87% of you grew up in a home where mom and dad stayed continuously married. And if, you, if you're married and you're 59, 81% of you, as a man, grew up in a home where mom and dad stayed continuously married. There's just a trend that just held across, across those generational cohorts. On the slide on the presentation I have up, you'll see these. Obviously, I want you to look very closely and read all the small numbers. Uh, just kidding. Uh, look at the, the blue lines and the red lines. You'll see that they generally are at the same heights, okay? And that is the percent of folks in each group. The blue is men. The red is women, okay? There's married and there's never married. And you see that generally the trend is the same across those generations. They all have about the same number of mom, 
of, of uh, the same likelihood, the same percentage of people growing uh, up in a home with continuously married parents, right? So what this means is folks in church on Sunday are categorically more likely to have grown up with a resident dad in the home than someone who is not in church on Sunday, okay? Uh, it doesn't mean, it's not definitive, it doesn't mean that someone who didn't grow up in a church on Sunday, I'm sorry, didn't grow up in a home with a married parent doesn't, uh, doesn't mean they won't be in church, okay? In, indeed, one in, one in five folks sitting in the pews grew up in a home with, without married parents. But it makes it much less likely for those folks to show up in, 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 uh, on Sunday morning, right? So uh, if this was uh, a real phenomenon, you'd expect to see it in other data, and indeed we do, okay? This, uh, the blue and the teal line on the graph in front of you is data gathered from the Social Capital Project of the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Congress, okay? The dark blue line is the percent of non-marital births, the teal line is the percent of ever divorced women between the age of 50 and 64. Basically, it's a, it's a way to, to capture how many kids at any given moment are in a home without, without married parents, right? You see that those blue and the teal goes up. The red line is religious non-affiliation, okay? You, you don't see that start to rise as a national phenomenon. It's widely seen that that religious non-affiliation doesn't start to grow until sometime between 1986 and 1991, and then really starts to rapidly grow in the mid-90s, okay? And that would make sense, right? The, 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 as more and more uh, kids become adults, where they weren't in a home, or mom and dad stayed continuously married, you start to see them uh, showing up in the religious non-affiliation data, right? Uh, so uh, the married dad is the missing ingredient. Now, uh, there's a variety of, uh, of other studies that I cite in this one. I'd encourage you to grab it. Uh, the Oxford University Press longitudinal, uh, uh, Oxford University Press published a longitudinal study following 350 families over 40 years, about 3,000 people. And what, what one of the big things that came out in that particular data set was adults who um, uh, reported, if, if if they were reported having a warm or close relationship with dad, they were 25 percentage points more likely to report having the same faith as their parents, okay? Uh, what, was, what stuck out is reporting having a warm or close relationship with mom had no statistical effect uh, or relationship to holding the same faith as their parents. Dad is the, at least in faith transmission, is the 800-pound gorilla spiritually in terms of like if you're trying to figure out how we we hand on faith from one generation to the next, dad is is a huge huge factor. And uh, th there's a a, a, a a dear friend, Dr. Paul Vitz, who is a former atheist, founder of divine, a co-founder of Divine Mercy University, was a former professor at NYU. He has a peer-reviewed thesis that finds frequently. Uh, agnosticism and atheism is frequently has its origins in a failure to attach to a father. Okay. And he has a popularly written book that goes into this, uh, which is called faith of faith of, uh, uh, gosh, uh, faith of our fathers, I think. And, um, and, uh, in the book, uh, he goes into, does an analysis of the uh, world's 30 best known atheists, Frederick Nietzsche, Jean-Paul Sartre, you can, he, he's even, after publishing the book, you can see this with Stephen Harris and the New Atheists. There is a recurring theme of a uh, absent or broken relationship with dad, right? So 
uh, fundamentally, uh, this shouldn't surprise us as Christians. If, if you're a Christian listening to this, right, Scripture begins uh, with a marriage in the garden. It ends in the eschatological wedding feast of the Lamb. It is everywhere in Scripture as a uh, the most common uh, analogy that God tells uh, for the divine love story is a spousal love story, right? You see this in Psalms, the book of Songs of Solomon. Uh, we see this in the powerful story of the prophet Hosea. We see it in First, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 13, you see it all over, right? So, so renewal fundamentally for those in the church interested in seeing renewal of faith, they need to see uh, a renewal of marriage. Uh, Christian marriage is central to that. And if we do that, we'll also solve the loneliness epidemic. And I won't go much into it here. We can talk about it more in a moment. But um, uh, about half of all Americans... Uh, according to the U.S. Surgeon General's recent advisory, are considered lonely by a public health definition, right? That means they're likely to have bad health outcomes, live a life about 15 years shorter than someone who isn't considered lonely. And in church, 22% of all churchgoers are considered uh, lonely. But when you peel that back and separate married versus single, you see that there's a, a really uh, a different story to be told, right? Only, only about 15% of married churchgoers are considered lonely, but half of everybody who's, who's, who's not married is. And in fact, the loneliest people in our pews, okay, are not the elderly. They're not the widowed, okay? The, the loneliest people in the pews are between the age of 30 and 39 who are either divorced or never married. Okay, the, the never married are, are, more, are lonelier as a group in their 30s than widows. The loneliest group of widows are between the age of 50 and 59. Okay, if, if you're 34 and not married in church, you're lonelier on average than a widow in that age group. So pause here. You can download the study yourself if you're watching on, uh, online, communio.org backslash study. You can jump into it, and we have printed copies here, and we'll look forward to the conversation here, Jay. Let's this is really important stuff, and so I want to dig in. And of course, I, I had advance notice of this, so I, yes. I read the study. Um, but several things actually occurred to me just when you were talking about it. So I want to drill in a little bit on this question of mothers, right? So there is, it's kind of counterintuitive because you would assume, I would assume, as a working hypothesis just kind of based, I don't know, you know, intuitions that, that that a married mother and father, that's key. And obviously, the all things being equal, children need a, a mother and a father in their home. But it sounds like there's just something weirdly decisive about fathers. And so are you able to disentangle yeah. comparisons, for instance, with single mothers versus single fathers in which the parents are? So married? we didn't have enough data to go just into single fathers, right? 81% of yeah. all un. Uh, of all kids in an unmarried home are with the mom. Yes. Okay. So uh, the the reality is, is an unmarried dad. So Paul Amato is probably the best expert on non-resident fatherhood in the academy, and mm -hmm. he's got a, a study called Patterns of of Non-resident Fathers, and uh, sixty-eight percent of them in that study of a non-resident fathers are engaged with their kids on a uh, somewhere basically monthly or less. Yeah. Okay, the top 32%, which is the, the highest performing non-resident dads, mm -hmm. are unable to maintain more, on average, more than once a week contact with their kids mm -hmm. within two years of separation. Mm -hmm. And so from a Christian perspective, it's critical 
to disciple your your children, and it's hard for a dad to dis do the discipling if he's there. One, you know, uh, is interacting with their kids about as frequently as a youth minister might, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that's a. Uh, a, a huge, you know, a huge stumbling block. <laughs> yeah, just that, that's just from basic logistics. And so, so the, the the kind of key idea, if you had to say, there's one sort of takeaway from this study would be that um, if a child has a practicing Christian, this is restricted to Christians, obviously in the United States, but so let, we'll put it that way, um, is raised with a father in the home that's practice, a practicing Christian, yeah. the child is much more likely to be a practicing Christian. Yeah, that's right. Practice. I use yeah. the the parable of, uh, in chapter 13 of Matthew, the parable of yep. sower the seeds, right? Mm -hmm. And some of the seeds are thrown on, on, on a path, some on rocky soil, some into a thorn bush, others onto, onto good soil. And, and the only soil in the, in the the only seeds that really grow and, mm. and sustain are those thrown on, on good soil, thrown and they grow 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, I've gone and given presentations in rural Kansas where there's lots of farmers, and a good farmer will tell you just because you throw a seed on good soil doesn't mean it always grows, right? right? Mm -hmm. sure. uh, we, we see the example of the prophet Samuel who spoke to God directly and his son was a pretty lousy yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> follower of the Lord. So it doesn't, people have fallen away, I note, have fallen away yes. from faith for as long as there's been people. Sure. Right. And, but if we're trying to understand the societal trend, yes. this cultural revolution that we're living through over the last 40 years, you, you, the only way to really understand it is this is the thing that mm -hmm. has preceded and has upended uh, Western civilization. Absolutely. I mean, I, I often say that uh, if you're raising your children right to increase the probabilities of a good outcome, right? I mean, That's right. God has given us all free will, right. alas, right? And so guess what? Your children, you can do everything right, and they can still choose differently, but you increase the probabilities. That's what we're talking about here, especially right. in the aggregate, right. uh, as an improvement. Yeah, there's, there's uh, something in, in fatherhood research that talks about it uses the term the authoritative dad, which mm -hmm. is maybe sounds negative, but it's actually a positive yeah. pattern of fatherhood. And the research, it's a research-based finding that basically a dad who has uh, able to have a warm and close relationship with his children at the same time as being able to have clear, non-overly coercive discipline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's it's that balance, right? And if you, it's funny when I was reading the research, and I couldn't help but think, wow, isn't our heavenly Father at least as, as yeah. a Christian we see? In Scripture, that God has this uh, this this balanced relationship with us. Absolutely. Okay. Now I've, I've got another question, but I want to bring Delano in. So you've written and thought a lot about this stuff. I mean, what do you mm -hmm. think about this? I mean, I, I thought it was a, a fantastic study. Um, I actually uh, cited your study and some remarks I gave um, on Saturday and All talked right. about you know the interplay between faith and family. Um, so I, I I'd love to see more of this sort of make it into the public square? Because my, my sense is that a lot of the conversations around child outcomes and family structure focus on sort of the economic impact right. of an absent father. So then, you know, the solutions always t turn mm -hmm. into child tax credits and other things to sort of raise a, a family's income level as if the only thing a father brings to his children uh, or his household is a paycheck. So I'd love to, to hear you talk a little bit more about how can we incorporate this message into the public square, um, both to counter some of what is being discussed by mm -hmm. folks on the left and increasingly some individuals on the center right. So, so I'll use an analogy, I'll use a political analogy. We are in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. right now. <laughs> and so if you're in a, if you're a nominee for 
president, and you're a general, and you've won the nomination, and you're, it's the general election, and you're losing your base by like 40 or 50 percent. Wow. Ouch. It doesn't, you, you can't, you can go out and have the greatest independent swing voter strategy mm -hmm. ever, but you're done. Yeah. Like there's no way that, it doesn't matter. And my argument is generally uh, uh, to the church, you need to have a base strategy, mm -hmm. right? That, that we have to, fundamentally there are, um, uh, Tens of thousands of churches across the country, 85% of which spend nothing on marriage and relationship ministry. Mm. And so many times local uh, civil society experts come to the church around what they perceive as the need. And they'll per pursue a pastor and say, hey, look, bad economic outcomes, bad socioeconomic s situations, yeah. we got to fix this. The pastor's first, obviously, mission is the salvation of souls, right? Mm -hmm. And and advancing and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, uh, so. What what I think this study does, and what has, has done when we we talk to pastors, mm -hmm. is allows us to help them understand that this problem is their problem. If they understand, if they're interested in advancing the gospel, if they're advancing, if they're interested in in, in um, producing movement yeah. on 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 faith and undoing the collapse that we're under undergoing, there is no path uh, no path absence solving marriage. And I say that to say the Holy Spirit doesn't actually care yeah. about my social science. He can do whatever he wants. Right, exactly. Of course. So absent yeah. a miraculous intervention that That's would right. be over and above what, what is playing out uh, in, the, in the natural world around us, this is this is the path. That's right. Yeah, and that's always, it's always possible. So, socially, we're going to have a revival, right? But that's not exactly a plan. Okay, so let's right. just have a revival. Right. That's right. really not up to us ultimately. Um, okay, so uh, you said it because pastors are very often, I know, averse to doing things that they think look political, especially mm -hmm. in a, say a divided sure. town in a purple state. And so I think what you argue here, though, is crucial. That in fact, this is about evangelism. If you're concerned with, yes. your, right, with, with yeah, growing the faith, right. <laughs> as I note, you know, if if um, if your worldview has a problem with healthier families and marriages, yeah. um, then the problem isn't is your worldview. Mm -hmm. um, so so this produces better outcomes. But for the pastor, this is uh, look. There's. The church is in business, I'd say, there's a big arbitrage opportunity mm -hmm. here. There's a huge under-leveraged asset in the life in the ch American church, okay? You have uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of brick and mortar assets of, of human resource capital that is on the sideline, right? Mm -hmm. in, in many ways, in the life of, of, of Christendom, there ha the church has responded to crises, right? There's yes. a crisis and then there's a response. And that's normative. You see that in the first millennia, the conciliar responses were certainly on the question of who is Jesus Christ. You have throughout uh, time, you saw there was plagues. I don't know if you guys have ever could even imagine a plague sweeping the world, right. but you imagine there was one. <laughs> and so like the An church, actual plague. An actual, right. You didn't actually right. experience yeah, so, one in the last couple yeah, of years. Right. So, <laughs> so it, it was the church that created the hospitals, yeah. right, in response. Uh, there was no... Uh, in, and. Um, uh, Christians uh, survived the ancient plagues at a 65% higher rate in ancient Rome than their pagan counterparts. Uh, that's according to secular research on, uh, on, uh, on, on the ancient world. So the church has responded mm -hmm. in her history around uh, uh, real deficits. Yeah. And now, now this is the deficit. It's really hard to share with somebody that there's a father in heaven who so loves you that he sent his only son to 
to die for you and and your sin and to uh, mm. and for your sins if i hate my dad oh yeah and mm. if or i can't relate to i can't see i don't understand mm -hmm. a, a father's presence now here's a big thing yeah. there's a lot of talk right now about dechurching and what's causing yeah. uh, religious disaffiliation i want to note this stuff operates on a on a more psych, deeper psychological level. Mm -hmm. So if I ask you, why did you stop going to church? You're going to give, and I give you a multiple choice. You're going to spit out a multiple choice yeah. response. Very rarely do you go, you know, um, Jay, I, I just had a failure to attach to my dad, and, and I just right, right. back yeah. <laughs> to my childhood. Absolutely. I just really just found it hard yeah. to grasp that there's a, a God in heaven who so loves me. Yeah. And so, so... What happens is churchmen chase after opinion surveys mm, sure. about, hey, what's, why are they leaving? And, we run, and, and of course, uh, lots of churches have been adjusting based on opinion surveys for the last 30 years. Right. And those who have made the biggest adjustments based on those surveys find themselves uh, worse off yes. than yeah. the ones who haven't. And it's because those surveys are not providing. It's it's not that people are lying. Nobody's lying no. when they ask. It's just it operates at a low at a it at totally a, makes sense. at a deeper level. Yeah, and we've known this for years that many people, when asked if they they disaffiliate or they actually right. become an atheist, inevitably will say, "Well, it was my science class in college or something like that." Right? Right? But it's not like they actually spent six years studying the teleological argument for God's existence, right? Yeah. right? It, that seems like a kind of respectable thing to say. Maybe it played some secondary role, but it's very often not the sort of key thing. Right. So I promise we're going to get to the policy questions, but I, one more on the theology, and I'm wondering what both of you think. This is speculative, but you mentioned Witz's amazing book in which he connected uh, highly influential atheists and relationships with fathers. And the name of the book was Faith of the Fatherless. Faith of the Fatherless. I got the yeah. name wrong. Yeah, Faith, Faith of the Fatherless. Of the fatherless. Um, and so I noticed I, many years ago, attended theological seminary, and at the time, a kind of radical feminist theology was popular, hmm. um, and an attack in the Christian context on referring to God as Father. And of course, Christians know, theists know that God's not literally a male up there in heaven, you know. Now, it, it, Incarnate, he was, right? Um, but there was a massive attack on that in, say, the 1990s. Um, and I noticed at the time that the most radical feminist theologians themselves mm. tended to have both uh, personal horrible relationships with their fathers mm. and also kind of a hatred of fatherhood in general. Mm. And so it makes sense that they wouldn't want to do this. But that's the kind of subterranean thing. And it, it actually just makes perfect sense because initially we want to intellectualize data like this and say, okay, well, the father, for whatever reason, is going to teach the child the catechism mm. or, you know, we're imagining these kinds of things as opposed to the father just every day is going to kind of present an image of what a father is like. Yeah. And is this going to be a relevant analogy that helps him or her to connect to the Heavenly Father? Or is it going to just completely screw it up? What do you both think? I just honestly think that might be the lion's share of what's happening here. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, I, I think of the question you ask whenever I hear, particularly in this context, um, particularly men on the center right mm -hmm. who are currently arguing against marriage yes. and telling other young men, if you want to secure your posterity, go through adoption and surrogacy. Mm -hmm. The first thing I think of when I hear a man speak that way is he's probably been through either a really nasty divorce yeah. or has a very bad relationship with his mother. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, one of those two things is true. So I do think our, our personal experiences have, experiences have a deep and profound impact on our general worldview. And I, I think it's 
you know, probably holds true in this instance as well. Yeah, and, and I think there's lots of practical for evangelists. I think there's a mm -hmm. lot of practical applications of these findings, okay? When, because frequently uh, the stated thing isn't the main thing, mm. right? okay? And so engaging, forming authentic relationships with people, getting to know their story, right? And um, uh, we had a, a, a friend who had been away uh, from the church for a, a few decades and uh, it, just from getting to know her, we realized uh, there was a really, um, there was hatred mm. toward her dad because of some terrible things that he right. had done. And just in talking with her, uh, was able to just share, speak into her uh, at a breakfast once where I was able to say, you know, don't allow your inability to have a relationship with your dad mm -hmm. to stop you from having a relationship with your heavenly father. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, she uh, she began to cry um, and um, and recognizing that this, we just had a great conversation. She, um, uh, she came back uh, uh, to church and um, uh, this had a, you know, frequently there's ways that this can come up. I shared this, uh, this with Paul Vitz and, and um, uh, you know, there, there's a lot going on uh, on a deeper level. Yeah. And uh, oftentimes what we want to do, I'm, I'm very, you know, prone to more scholastic arguments, mm -hmm. but recognizing that that's not really yeah. frequently how form, good sound formation is really important, yeah. okay? Uh, but you frequently need to earn the right to have the relationship exactly. reform. Exactly. Uh, content folks. matters. Content, content matters. matters. Content yes. and context. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Don, do you have a... Yeah, okay. I, I had a really quick question. Um, can you speak more to the realities of cohabiting churchgoers? Mm. Yes. Because that was one part of the, mm -hmm. the study that I found fascinating. Like, what what percentage of the respondents did were they? What, did they tend to have children already? And then what can churches do um, to give a gentle or not so gentle nudge for these individuals to get it's married. A, it's a massive, it's a massive problem, but cohabitors, anybody who's pastoring a church knows there are very few relative in numbers in church, because if you cohabitate, you're generally not showing up. There are cohabitors, they're about in our survey, a little less than about 2% okay, of okay. all responders okay. were. Uh, mm. Cohabitation is closely associated with diminished personal faith in God, mm. okay? Uh, there's, there's, Pew has new data out on that outside of our research. Wow. And um, uh, I, I think um, uh, there's huge negative, right? The study goes into, I mean, it's bad for women, mm -hmm. it's bad for men, okay? It's a worse deal, for, it, it, it's a bad deal for both, yeah. uh, but really bad deal for women. And you're lonelier, and you're less satisfied in your relationship, mm. right? Mm. But other than that, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and um, <laughs> and so, so a key, I, I always say when I talk to, to folks, you know, as parents, the time to talk to your kids mm -hmm. about dating is before, uh, you know, she, your daughter rides home on, a, home on a back of a motorcycle with a guy named Viper, like mm -hmm. it's earlier, you wanna get yeah. upstream of that. And I think the church should be doing the same thing. Like yeah. uh, there's a term like remote preparation. We should mm -hmm. be thinking in terms of formation, uh, uh, around what does a healthy relationship look like? Uh, my the book that I, I co-authored with John Van App, yep. a great uh, evangelical uh, pastor slash psychologist, has written a, a separate book. 
uh, how to avoid falling in love with a jerk. I read it to my kids. I, I told them that it was too late for their mom. It's not too late <laughs> yeah, for you. Exactly. And, um, and so we, um, but like we have to be active in the formation of our yeah. kids and not expect, right? The culture is teaching, uh, teaching what relationships should look like. Right. Yeah. And the modal time, the most, which means the most commonly occurring time where sex be, happens in a relationship is before a relationship begins. Mm. That is, okay, that's the modal time. So if we're not actually, um, uh, if frequently in church, there's an, there's an abdication of formation around this because uh, the most sexually chaste single 20-year-olds uh, uh, mm-hmm. are weekly attending uh, evangelical Christians, wow. okay? And 51% of them are not sexually chaste. Okay, mm-hmm. so so, and that's we, as good as it gets. That's as good as yeah, it gets. It right. doesn't get better. Yeah. Okay. So if we're not, if we're not uh, forming folks, and uh, certainly, you know, like I said, it's a there needs to be a base focus strategy. Yeah. I think in the uh, within we're at Heritage Foundation. It's yes. relative to talk about the conservative movement. There is mm-hmm. a problem within the movement, there's a problem yeah. uh, within the church, then there's, and, and you know, his physician heal thyself. Yes. So we have to, Absolutely. We have to uh, uh, focus there and then work out. Okay, so that's a good pivot because we are at the Heritage Foundation and we're sure. interested in public policy solutions to these problems uh, insofar as those exist. So um, there's sort of two sides to that, of course. There's, we could talk locally, state, federal, we can talk, okay, so what should the government not do that's creating this problem? And is there anything that the government could do that it's not doing that yeah. could help? Yeah, you know, I'm uh, obviously community doesn't do public policy, but I, we mm-hmm. something I think about a lot. And and anybody who's in the D.C. area knows that the cost of a of a home yeah. is a major stumbling block. Yeah. The number the the cost of living is a major stumbling block. Mm-hmm. Infrequently, do we understand how often. Uh, things that are local, that are very local, have, I think, a big impact on marriage, right? The, uh, the NIMBY world, right, yeah. where, where folks want less development, okay? Not in my backyard. Not in my backyard, yeah. right? Uh, you, anything that makes it harder to build a home, mm-hmm. you're going to make it harder for people to get married. That's just the way it goes. Uh, anything that, anything that uh, uh, when we are in opposition to road construction, expanding road, right? Mm-hmm. What you need is a, 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 a larger supply, right? It's just, it's not super complicated. No. A higher supply of homes leads to lower costs, right? But mm-hmm. we live in a, this is a great metro as an example, okay, where, uh, where generally we do everything but build more roads, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, a lot, you know, even DC famously, like reduce the amount of I feel roads, like they're trying to right? punish us. Right, no, point, but right? this is actually yeah. part of the, the smart growth yeah. ideology that's captured elements of the right and the left. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's part of it, right? So you have to, and so you have to think systematically through uh, public policy that affects the cost of a family to form. Yeah. That's a huge thing, right? And something that should be, uh, in some ways, uncontroversial, right? That yeah. I would like, you know, a, a family to to uh, make it easier for to buy a home, own a home, yeah. stay in a home. Absolutely, Lana, you have any thoughts on this? We're, we're There's many different ways. I just this, picked honestly, that one area. We're ourselves right. at Heritage working really hard on this question. Like, are there some positive sort of pro-family formation policies yeah. that actually make sense? I, I think for me, the biggest thing, and, and this is probably more so outside of a, of a church context, is how do we communicate that 
marriage um, is valuable, desirable, accessible, and indispensable mm. for this generation and the next with respect to family formation. Because if not, we will make it easier for two adults to cohabit yep. um, and purchase a home together right. and then live in that home for six to seven years and then say, oh, you know, we want to start a family and, yeah. and then go on from there, so. Yeah, I, I want to double click on that because that's such an important item, mm -hmm. right? So if you look at, if you downloaded the Surgeon General's advisory on loneliness, it's an 82-page yeah. document, okay? It buries the lead, marriages use, the word marriage is twice in there, okay? okay? And it's on page 15, <laughs> okay? It's, it's the first time, first time it's, yeah. it's there. You, if marriage rates were the same as they were in the late 90s, you wouldn't have a loneliness epidemic, mm -hmm. right? Now, the, the authors of that particular advisory basically do hand-waving about mm -hmm. marriage and the decline of it is kind of, it's complex and very mm -hmm. difficult and sort of like leaves it to the mysteries of right. the universe. Yes. And, um, uh, but on the flip side, the, I suspect the authors of the study, and I don't know them personally, have no problem advancing very specific um, moral encouragements on a variety of other factors, Absolutely. right? Yeah. On, on how uh, they might live their, their, their lives, yeah. right? And, and so we have to understand that I think the state isn't going to be a, a um, neutral agent, no. right? And that yeah. the reality is, is marriage uh, is the best format for forming future citizens. Yeah. It's just the data is overwhelming. If you're interested in just, you know, new soldiers, taxpayers, and... Mm -hmm. and uh, Non-criminals. Right, yeah. right. If you're interested in, in, in combating crime, all those sorts of things, yeah. right? Uh, uh, you know, the saying is that marriage civilizes men, mm -hmm. right? Mrs. DeGantz, she agrees. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, so this is a... Um, uh, what, we, what we have to be deeply concerned about if, if we're comfortable advancing uh, the postmodern world's morality on a host of factors yeah. and think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, how frequently our government and um, our, our elite encourage specific moral behaviors, okay, but then they wash their hands yes. of, oh, this is, you know, a personal matter, we that's can't, right. right? Then you start to understand that that's not the real no. reason, no. that's not the real reason that... Absolutely. All right, let's take some questions. We could do this for a couple of hours, I could at least. So um, we have Mike Runner, so we'll just start back here. Uh, J.P. Hogan, I'm hearing a lot of this, and I'm wondering, isn't there a dilemma then in the church with the old message, honor your mother and father, if, if the mm. previous generation went astray, or maybe this one is, how do denominations then redirect? Mm. Because that could be a trigger if you're trying to bring someone back in or... I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, it, it's a huge, you know, it, it shows, you know, those denominations who um, move with the world on marriage hmm. are gonna have a major, it's, it's, it's a major uh, uh, stumbling block, hmm. okay? Uh, it, I believe that, the, the, that what we've identified is that, that a dad is super important for the transmission of faith. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that there's a number of churches today that don't believe a dad is necessary. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Like, based on their doctrine, changes. Right. So, like, you can't square that. Right. So, mm -hmm. so, uh, so that's a. It's important uh, for uh, uh, fidelity. I think on marriage, but the, uh, on what marriage is. But that's you have to go way beyond that. Okay. 
Uh, I think one of the big mm. criticisms legitimately, I think, of American churches has been, uh, we've been in a, uh, a divorce revolution, a family structure revolution, and it appeared that in most ways, the only thing churches were interested in was for a period of time was talking about the definition of it. And we need to help folks live marriage well, okay? I, uh, the most common pathway to grow in holiness for the lay life is, is marriage. It does, it's not the only, I agree, it's not the only one, the mm. most common path, mm. okay? Pour into me, help me not become holy as a man, help me to be holy as a married man, mm. because that's what God has called me to. That's the path for me to grow in holiness. And 85% of all churches spend nothing in this area, okay? And uh, uh, it's what's, um, I don't become, I didn't become, if you're a golfer or a tennis player, right? You don't become great at golf by watching the Masters. You don't become great at golf by watching the British Open. Okay, you're not gonna become great at marriage by hearing a great sermon. You just won't, yeah. okay? That's a form of instruction that's one way, okay? There's a, a lot of research that the practice of the skills of living relationship well are are known, knowable, and can be practiced mm -hmm. and uh, should live within churches. Our churches should be schools of love. We should know how to live marriage. Well, we, we see this in the spiritual life, right? The churches will do a lot to help people grow in personal holiness in different ways, spiritual disciplines, right? But how do I, uh, how do I grow as being a husband? And in today's, in between pornography, right? Uh, uh, the ubiquitousness of pornography, uh, the um, the low uh, cultural view of monogamy and uh, the marital commitment, right, is surrounding us. And in, in many ways, churches are still behaving pastorally as if it's the 1950s in mm. terms of like, oh, well, you know, people will show up when it's time to get married and then we'll, you know, maybe we'll meet, them, meet with them three or four times and then we'll, we'll do the wedding and, you know, We'll see if you have any crisis, right? And then, and then maybe if you're you're dead, we'll bury you. But that's it, right? Like that's not that's not uh, a, a formation. Uh, that's not a, a plan to uh, to help the people of God grow, right? Yeah. Why is there so much ignorance on the purpose of marriage from a biblical perspective? What I mean, all the churches don't know that, mm -hmm. and they've allowed the marriage to be made a law. It's not a law biblically. It has to be through love for faithfulness, not through law. Mm. That is one of the things that the church, church needs to be given the responsibility of marriage, not the nation. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, so this gets at like a, a bigger question of whether or not the state should be in, involved in marriage. And I think the definitive answer is it has to be. Right, like as long as unless we don't want the state to be worried about children who are who don't have who don't have like the reality is is there's property it gets conveyed a child who doesn't have a parent the state has a responsibility if 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 we if we want to move to a, a, a state of of like a sort of a, a level of a Nozickian thought experiment I don't we could but that's not the current situation of our country right so we have to. That's the the world. The reality is, you're going to have some the state's going to have uh, a role within within marriage because the state has a role in the conveyance of uh, making sure 
uh, probate happens, that you know, children have a, a caregiver, and, um, and, and, and those sorts of concerns. Yeah, so the state has an, uh, an interest in this, and I, I, the way I think of it is that the question is whether the state recognizes marriage as a reality, just as it recognizes individuals with rights and responsibilities. It either does or doesn't, and if it doesn't, you know, the, the kind of libertarian thought experiment sounds nice until you sort of run this right. out, you know? Yeah, and I think a Burkean response, like a, a sort of Burkean conservative response would be, that marriage pre-exists the state, right? Yes. And, and as a Christian, you say it's the first institution, right? So the state doesn't have the power to create a whole cloth new institutions, or it shouldn't. The, the more limited government approach would be to, to recognize that institution recognize that forms people yeah. that, that already exists in reality, right? And, yeah. and so, so certainly that's a, um, uh, that's a, real, a real phenomenon, yeah. right? So over here. Uh, thank you. I'm Kelly Kahlberg with the New American Association of Evangelicals. Um, what we often talk about and see is a world of big tech, AI, now gaslighting, uh, using our words but not our meanings. And I just wonder, uh, evangelistically and culturally, if there's not for us a, a real and the church a real opportunity to take our words back to their proper meanings, um, maybe to speak of victims of the sexual revolution, like Jennifer Roback Morris has been doing, mm -hmm. and, um, and love in terms of real world outcomes for people, the highest good for another, progress in terms of outcomes, happiness, and so forth. And I wonder if any of you would comment, I know Jay's done a lot of this on language, the use of language and taking our words back. Yeah, either of you. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Um, I, I couldn't agree more, right, that, that um, in many ways, in, at least in the United States, the way the sexual revolution has played out has, has treated children as, a, uh, as if they have very little value and it doesn't, it, they don't... Um, uh, we're, we're trading cheaply in the lives of others when we uh, celebrate uh, different types of, of um, lives that that have a that have children without dads, without maybe moms mm -hmm. uh, in the picture. Uh, we're, we're sadly one of the only nations on earth that hasn't uh, that hasn't um, uh, ratified. The UN, uh, 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 one of the UN treaties on on the rights of the child, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we're up there with North Korea, mm -hmm. and uh, and so uh, uh, children have rights too. They have, you know, they have uh, a child should have a right to his mom and dad. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it shouldn't be that complicated, okay? And uh, when we think of a child like, a, I think the sexual revolution has uh, taken commercialism into mm. personhood, mm -hmm. right? So we treat the other like a product, good, right? So uh, someone is a source of sexual gratification and nothing else, the, the child uh, becomes a, a product. I have a right to a child and, and, and so, so we don't think in terms of <laughs> the child's own rights, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think there's huge opportunities in talking uh, and, and focusing on language development that illustrates the, that truth, right? That, that the, the reality is, is our prisons 
are, are full of, of men who lack dads, mm. right? The old saying is that, that uh, and I've heard it from, from uh, former prison chaplains, on Mother's Day, many cards go out, and Father's Day, not a one, mm -hmm. okay? And, and, and there's, there are, uh, we've spent a lot of times on the American right often talking about rights, but we've very little times, I think, one of the things that we need to do is talk about responsibilities. Mm. That we have some, like, that there are real responsibilities uh, that, that, that we have when we mm. engage in certain actions. If we create life, we've got responsibilities to that life. And, and, there's, and if, if we don't owe up to those responsibilities, there's real victims. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, one more question right here in the front. Hey guys, thank you for being here. I uh, really appreciate it. Um, I'm 24, I'm married, I'm having a baby in like the next two weeks. Um, <laughs> but I talk to a lot of other guys my age and I, I find it really hard to blame them when they think of marriage as a high risk, low reward proposition. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of young men think um, either that, you know, they just can't find a, a good quality woman to settle down with. I know it's easy to blame the guys and I know that's not what you guys want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't wanna blame all the ladies either. I'm just kind of wondering with things like no fault divorce and with, with the ease at which, I mean, most divorces are initiated by women. I'm not sure they're always caused by women, but mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of wondering at, we've talked a lot about the lack of people, young men getting married or the lack of, you know, people, young people getting married. And then also this just like massive onset of divorce. Um, and I tend to think, you know, what would you guys say to, either like a 24 year old like me who's not married and, and just thinks this is a waste of my time mm -hmm. and or to, you know, the guy who is in a relationship, maybe he's divorced already, you know, his wife, his first wife walked away from him. I mean, this is actually a pretty common occurrence nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, so what do we say to those young men? How do we prevent them from sort of sliding into some things that we've alluded to? Um, I, I think, Delana, you kind of got at it a little bit uh, about what you refer to as kind of people on the center right, or you could say the vitalist mm -hmm. right, or, or however you wanted to put it. Um, what actually is the antidote to that, um, both in rhetoric and in, in the way we talk about it, but also in policy? You know, um, what, mm -hmm. what can we do to you know, help meet those young men uh, where they are? Mm -hmm. The well, first thing is, is, if anybody's heard the expression that half of all marriages end in, end in divorce, uh, never repeat that. Mm -hmm. It's not true. Uh, and it, it has never been true, okay? So 65% or so of all first-time marriages last a lifetime, which means most marriages last a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that's a, from a messaging perspective, you're talking to me like, hey, how do I talk to, so first off, the likelihood is your marriage is gonna last a lifetime, okay? So I, I think that's, that's important. Uh, num number two, I, I do think as pastors and, and churches, we, there, there is a real gap in marital satisfaction between men and women, and we, we go into it in the, in the study, okay? 18% um, of everybody in church who's married on Sunday self-report struggling in their marriage, but that gap between men and women is that women are 61% more likely to report struggling in their marriage, which doesn't surprise a lot of the women here. And so, um, just kidding. So, so uh, the biggest gap in marital satisfaction is in the 30s, so women in their 30s, uh, are 109% more likely to report struggling in their marriage than men in their 30s. Uh, we could go on about why that might be, but this is important. It's all the reason why churches should be mm. equipping and not just, once they get, there's sort of like this laissez-faire Christian idea that you get married and you're just sort of like, you know, 
good luck. We're all rooting for you. And uh, that can't be what pastors do. That can't be what churches yeah. do. And so I think if there was a culture at the, in, a, in churches where, where churches were pouring into and into marriages and the, it was so clear, right? right? Uh, the old, and it's not a particularly favorite Christian hymn of mine, but the, they will know we are Christians by our love. So that one, uh, they should know that we're Christians by our love, right? And there should be a major, uh, major di- difference in the health and, and strength of our marriages. I think that's an, an excellent question. And, and I'll say this, and, and I agree that, that that statistic about 50% of marriages um, and divorce is not true. I am interested to see how this plays out generationally. And, and my sort of gut level reaction is that our marriages today are different because we as people today are different. Hmm. I think previous generations thought, even if they never spoke it, thought in terms of duty and obligation. Hmm. And today, more and more people, even if they're getting married for the first time at 45, are thinking about you know, personal happiness and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that's the case, a person is going to be more likely to leave a marriage, even if it's not you know, particularly, even if none of the four A's, um, you know, abuse, abandonment, um, adultery, or three A's, mm-hmm. uh, abuse, abandonment, or, or adultery are present. Um, so so I, I just wonder how that plays out over the generations. But, but I will say this, I think a couple of things that I would say to a young man, one, um, is that marriage has benefits for everyone in the household. Um, obviously for kids, we, we talk about you know poverty rates, but uh, I've never seen a, in sickness and in health sort of um, you know, uh, addendum attached to a divorce decree or right. a co-parenting agreement, right? Mm-hmm. right. So, so marriage is not just good for the kids, it's good for both men and women. Mm. Um, and I, I would also say to young men, particularly who may not have, who may not think in this way, that marriage gives you both something to live and to die for. Because I do think young men need to be called up to think about something outside of themselves. Because mm-hmm. I think young people in general yeah. um, spend way too much time looking down at their navels and not nearly enough looking out at the world and particularly looking down range to generations to come and to say, if you get this right today, you can set up sort of multiple generations of success and peace and prosperity. But if you mess it up, um, your kids are going to struggle. And, and then you'll have to, as a church, be dealing with the frustration that young people 50 years from now will have when, you, when, you, when they hear the commandment to honor mother and father. So. I, I'm optimistic. Mm-hmm. If I wasn't a Christian, I probably would not be optimistic <laughs> um, because I, I do hear of people, and, and Jay, we've talked about this even in media. If, if a man in the 1950s left his wife and family for a secretary, everyone saw, saw him as a louse and a mm-hmm. cad. But I can't tell you the number of profiles I've read in The Atlantic, um, and, and The New Republic about a woman saying, I destroyed my family. And then when you get down to it, it's like, because I wanted to drink Chardonnay on Wednesday and do yoga on Thursday. And if that's the case, it's going to be difficult to build strong, sustaining families for a lifetime. So I, and I, get the, I think this goes right back to your point, JP. Um, yes, politics are downstream from culture, but culture is downstream from religion. And I think the entire re- culture needs to be re-discipled mm. in terms of definitions uh, and in terms of values as it relates to family. 
Please join me in uh, thanking JP. <laughs> <laughs>